Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Oracles, prophecies, apocalypse scientific projection we're always looking to the future can we tell what the future holds these are questions that have been really very pressing this year um coming up we have in glasgow united nations climate change conference focused on the question of where the entire planet is going what the future of humanity is whether the world is going to end and of course daily at the moment we are trying to work out um, what the future of the pandemic is, uh, when the lockdown will be able to end, whether we're going to get back to normality. Um, with me here is uh, my co-conspirator, Dominic Sandbrook. Um, Hello, Dominic, I guess that um, there is nothing new about looking to the future, is there? I mean, this is pretty much a constant, wanting to know what it yeah. holds. It's a sort of constant of human history, isn't it? So... Um... It's a slightly odd subject, isn't it, the history of the future? Because you think when you're a historian, you write about purely about what happened in the past. But actually, how people thought of the future is a really interesting topic. And it obviously also, you know, it tells you an enormous amount about the, the context, because generally when people were looking forward, they project their own anxieties, usually their own fears. Um, and we've always done it, you know, the, the earliest religious texts uh, looking to the future. You know, people are fascinated now by what the world will be like. You know, is China going to rule the world? Are we going to all end up in a ball of flame? So it's actually a really interesting way to look back at the sort of the imagination of the people who come before us. I mean, I do, do you think there's a kind of qualitative difference, say, between somebody looking um, uh, in chicken guts to work out what the future holds and the kind of the the level um, at the beginning of the pandemic when basically we knew very little and it was clear <laughs> that people knew very little but people still wanted answers and so people yes, were, were broadcasting answers it kind of suggests almost that even if even if we don't know we would like to be told something about the future yes i think the sort of fog of uncertainty is often the most frightening thing of all isn't it and actually but in some ways we 
You know, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. If you know that you're just looking at a load of old guts, then <laughs> at least you know where you stand. <laughs> Whereas, you know, when you're sort of people are tweeting graphs and they they've read, you know, they've spent the morning on Wikipedia, so they're an expert in yeah. epidemiology. Uh, that I think can lead you down some pretty dark rabbit holes. Yeah, but, but I mean, the people look at you know, people looking into the guts. These were highly skilled definers. They <laughs> yes, they thought that they knew true. what they were doing. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. and, and in a sense, the guy on Twitter with a graph. I mean, he kind of doing the same. So I think the big difference is, you know, if you were living in. I mean, maybe medieval historians will say I'm talking nonsense, but my sense is that if you were living in the sort of 12th century and you, and when you looked at the past, the past was sort of in the old king's reign or in King so-and-so's reign or something, you know, that was your sort of sense of time. And when you looked into the future, when you looked forward, you assumed that the future would look roughly like the present. There was no sense that, you know, people will have wings or, or there will be cars or, or anything like that because society had been so stable for so long, effectively. Um, but I think once you had the scientific revolution, then thoughts about change really began to sort of color the way that people thought of the future. So they thought about it in terms of inventions and technology rather than necessarily the rise and fall of, of states or of dynasties or something. Do you think that's a big, a big shift? Well, I I think that actually people in the Middle Ages did have a sense that the future might be very different. And that's because it had been written for them in the Bible. And I know oh, that right. you, you, yeah. you will kind of moan at the thought that... No, I've no, no, I, I knew this was coming. But, but I actually think that um, the, the idea that, uh, in a sense, the future is written and that it has a definite end point is something that's quite distinctive because actually most societies, most time across most of the world have tended to assume that time time is circular so that uh, you know there are orders of existence and then they end and then they begin again and it just goes round and round yeah but but our our civilization muslim civilization um both have this very strong idea that there's a point of creation and then there is a point uh, a kind of end of days um and i think that that perhaps continues to structure the way that we think of the, oh, of the future does, to this it? day. I mean, the, the kind, I, I, and I don't know what the answer to this is, whether in non-Christian, non-Muslim civilizations, whether there is quite the same kind of apocalyptic sense of anxiety about where climate change might lead. I mean, I'm, I'm not denying mm, that climate change is a, is, is, is a monstrous threat, but I think that we are culturally conditioned to expect that we sin and we will then be judged for our sins and the punishment will be visited on the entire world with terrible devastation and plagues yeah. and famines and things. And I think that that is still kind of part of our, 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 our mental furniture. We have a sense of the story being finite, of the story having an end. And if you think about, I mean, this is a strange example, but the way the Vikings thought about Ragnarok. So at the end of Ragnarok, the, the earth is then reborn and the sort of story starts again. Um, that that's not what happens in in Christian thinking, is it? Or Muslim thinking? You know, the earth dies, and then that's it. History comes to an end. Yes, but again, with Ragnarok, it's difficult because we don't know the degree to which that vision of the end of the gods and the end of the world is kind of contaminated by Christian. Later, myth. yeah, so, yeah. So it's, it's written it's, down it's, much it's, later, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it, it's very difficult to tell. But I do think that. Um, the, the kind of the the idea that time goes forward kind of you know the contrast is time's arrow against yeah. time's wheel and we definitely live in a time's arrow civilization and i'm sure that that then you know you talk about the the 
huge impact that technology has and technological development that that then fuses with that sense that um that you increasingly get with the industrial revolution that yeah the the, the future will just be qualitatively different but yeah. we can under you know we, we we can it's not a problem for us to kind of comprehend that because we're so you know civilizationally adjusted to the idea that time is going forward in a single continuous stream well it's sort of the idea of progress isn't it people um we live in a world where the idea of of, of sort of forward movement is hardwired into our sense of the of the world, and, and actually, I guess for people before, well, m- well my feeling would be um, that for people before about seventeen hundred, their sense of forward movement was purely a sort of almost a moral one or a, a theological one. So, yeah. what's coming is going to be the sort of fifth monarchy, and um, you know, the, the the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. Whereas after 1700 or so, what's coming is people are going to extract sunbeams from cucumbers and we'll have, you know, flying um, horses and carriages or whatever. The, the, the expectations become much less morally freighted. I, think, I mean, I think that there are kind of moments in medieval history where technology does kick in. Um, so around the year 1000, you do start to get a sense that um, technological development is coinciding with... Um, a kind of moral reawakening um the idea that europe is being clothed with a veil of white churches uh coincides with the fact that people are conscious that that in a sense life is is kind of getting better but i i completely agree that it's the speed and pace of technological change that you get in the modern period that is really different and transformative um yeah. and so i mean do, do you think that um the kind of scientific visions that we have now, which are often dystopias, um, how far back do they go? Do you think the sense of the future is being structured by technology and science? I think that's really interesting because some of the, the, I mean, a great prediction of the future come from 1733. So at the sort of heart of the scientific revolution is from a fellow called Samuel Madden, who is an Anglican clergyman. He wrote a book called Memoirs of the 20th Century pretty much unreadable now and, and unread actually and even amidst all this change and you know the industrial revolution is really kicking off he saw it purely in terms that would appeal to you so he thought the the, the world was going to have this great confrontation between jesuit the jesuits and the deists this was going to be <laughs> the kind of right. ideological yes. conflict of the future and he was obsessed with the pope and you know the papal forces were were going to take over the world and all this kind of thing and you kind of think how wrong can you be, you know, obviously, because we know that papal power was in you know deep decline um, uh, in the sort of early modern, later early modern period. Um, but, you know, that's a sign that it's not just about um, technology. Often morality is a huge part of it. So morality is there in kind of brave new world, Aldous Huxley's um, vision of the future. And this sort of sense that um, science, it's, it's not so much the sort of technological accomplishments of science that are interesting, but it's their effect on our behavior and on the and on our sort of ethical you know conduct and all that sort of thing i think that's always a big always a, a huge part of it tom i i know this is slightly going off piste what's just been distracting me during my reply do you have a picture of ian botham just over your shoulder i do yes <laughs> yes it was given to me but on for our wedding and it's a signed photograph of the great man wishing giving us best wishes we're gonna to have to cut this around the podcast, no no, no. i think the listeners will love this i mean i'd like to it's so good that you 
And you absolutely <laughs> conform to the um, expectations that people would have of you. I mean, they really would think that this is what's going on, and it is. Well, I have to say that um, that, that when I got it for our wedding, uh, if I looked into the future, I'd be very happy to know that. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was being mentioned on a podcast, which, of course, you know, when I got married, I had no idea was. what a podcast was. Yeah, that's the thing. So, okay, which uh, brings us back. <laughs> Yeah, I, that is going off piste. But so, so let me I, I, again. You, you know, you're a historian of the modern period. Do you think that our understanding of the future and the way that it changes is speeding up? No, I don't think it's speeding up. I think uh, there are obvious different phases. There, there are clearly, you know, different phases of our understanding of the future. So at the turn of the 20th century, when people thought about the future, they they thought about it in terms of state conflict, actually, didn't they? There was all invasion stories and scare stories about world wars. And then um, the visions that people had of the future in the sort of mid-20th century, the really sort of influential ones like 1984, they're about totalitarianism and political ideology. And the ones we've had since let roughly the, I mean, there was obviously the expectations of World War Three. Um, in the seventies and eighties, but yeah, that was a then, massive tradition, wasn't it? I mean, that it was, was that's was, gone now, hasn't it? You don't see it at all now. I mean, yeah. I mean, you remember that book? Um, we were talking about it before we started. Uh, the Third World War by General Sir John Hackett. Yes, wipe, they wipe out Birmingham. Yeah, they drop a nuclear bomb on Birmingham, the Russians. Um, and there was all that stuff: threads, the war game, all these terrifying visions of of nuclear apocalypse. But actually, what we've had since then, I mean, they're almost all always about two things: they're either about computers and sort of virtual worlds, so the sort of neuromancer ish or Blade Runner, I suppose, which is about robots, or they're about um, environmental catastrophe. And that's our big. Th- I mean, that's our book of revelation, isn't it? That's our obsession. That is, I, I think yes. As to say, I think I think climate change definitely is is absolutely running with that. I mean, I, I wrote a book about the the year one thousand, um, which, for all kinds of obvious reasons, um, was apocalyptic anxieties. I think were were it's debated, but I think I, I think it's pretty clear that they were very much part of the climate of the time. And um, there are all these kind of anxieties and, and terrors and dread. And while I was writing that, I read James Lovelock, um, who wrote a, oh, yeah. a particularly terrifying kind of Jeremiah about what was going to happen. Um, and essentially saying that, you know, the world would be uninhabitable by 2030. Um, and the language that he was using was was eerily reminiscent. Um, plagues, famines. Yeah. Um, and, and and for our sin, I mean, that's the that's I think is is the crucial thing. Whereas I I agree that um, in a sense the um, computers and online particularly is something that would be absolutely unimaginable. To, I mean, even even to someone in nineteen seventy, I guess. Yeah. Well, maybe Philip K. Dick, who I have a shame to say I've never read, but I mean, he kind never of, he's, when, when's he writing? 50s, is he? Yeah, I mean, 50s, he's, 60s. he's kind of starting to to pick up on that. But it's, uh, you know, William Gibson and, and people like that are, are kind of just ahead of the curve. And, and now, um, you know, it, it's all about computers. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, I've written, as you know, these sort of books about post-war Britain and and the computers and technology are always there in the background right from the beginning. So my book starts in the early 50s, mid-50s. And in 1955, the Daily Mirror did a big, um, huge series um, called The Robot Revolution about how, you know, robots, as they called them, were going to change the world. 
And the expectation for a long time was that computers would just would make everything so great and you just have so much leisure. Um, and jetpacks. Yeah, well, it was, well, obviously you've got the 60s sort of <laughs> utopianism. I mean, that has completely been lost. And you saw that everywhere in the 60s in, in fashion and in design, in the, in the design of cities, you know, the sort of Le Corbusier look that became very popular in the 60s. Um, and then in the 70s that died and you had, I mean, obviously Star Wars's vision of the, I mean, I know it's a long, long time ago, but this vision of the future is, is a bit dirtier um, than 2001's. And then you have Blade Runner, which is obviously an adaptation of Philip K. Dick, where it's all driving rain and, and misery and pollution and, 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 you know, this sort of, this sort of pure dystopia. And that, and we've remained there ever since. And if anything, when I mean, we talked about the road, I think in a Cormac McCarthy's um, book in a previous podcast, you know, that's become, that sort of vision has now become all enveloping. You never see an optimistic prediction of the future now. It's all about either a withdrawal into technological escapism because your jobs have been destroyed by computers and robots, or it's, you know, just sort of living in a, you know, apocalyptic wasteland uh, because your, your, and your climate has been completely ravaged. But I wonder, going back to the book of Revelation, whether that's simply because it's it's kind of easier and more fun in a way to portray yeah. disaster yeah, course, than it is. You know, so you've got, you know, the horsemen of the apocalypse and uh, you know, plagues and everything. Um, and then you've got, you know, a quite short passage about how great it's going to be when the New Jerusalem descends. But then it ends. Because <laughs> yeah. It's actually very hard to describe what the New Jerusalem is going to be. Yes. It's quite boring. That's basically it's like Marxism, isn't it? I mean, it spends a lot of time talking about the struggles to bring, you know, the 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 new world, but then the new world itself is never actually described because who cares? You know, it's just looking at pot plants and strolling in country walks, and that's not very interesting. Right. Well, Dominic, I'm going to give a prophecy, and the prophecy is we're going to go for a break in a minute, um, and when we come back, we're going to uh, look at people's uh, questions and try and answer them. So that's my prophecy. Let's see if it comes true. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people will be <laughs> horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Uh, Two episodes again this week. Uh, On Thursday, we will be discussing our top 10 weird wars. We've got some fantastically bizarre ones lined up to discuss. But for now, um, let's move on to uh, your questions. Dominic, do we have any questions? We do, Tom. This first one is an absolute gift for you. So it's from Joel Coppersmith. And he says, did the ancients believe in the Delphic Oracle? Now, just before you answer that, I should say this. In Assassin's Creed Odyssey, you find out that the uh, the woman who is the Oracle is actually... Epithia. She is working for the cult of Cosmos, who are the villains, and she knows she's giving false prophecies. So that's my answer. Oh, really? Tom. Yeah. You've right. steered well, clear of this, haven't you? Because you think you'll be addicted. But um, <laughs> yes. For the same reason I haven't taken up heroin. I'm sure it's great, yeah. but it kind of... Has bad bad side effects. Since I have um, a nine year old in the house, we we haven't stayed clear of it. <laughs> right. um, uh, yes, absolutely. The uh, the Greeks, uh, of, of course, because otherwise they wouldn't have gone and consulted it. Otherwise, it would have been a kind of wasted effort. But um, what's distinctive, I think, about the uh, the way that the Greeks view their oracles and and perhaps uh, Apollo's oracle specifically is that they expect it to be tricksy. They, ex- they expect it to be mm. elliptical. So um, Herodotus, in his uh, his great work, translated by me, um, <laughs> nice describes word. how um, the Ethiopians, when they consult the, the oracle, they will get an answer and they will do exactly what the oracle tells them. And Herodotus obviously sees this as being kind of slightly unusual and odd. And the reason that he sees it odd is that it, it's taken for granted by the Greeks that Apollo's answers will be hard to understand. So he he's called Loxias, which essentially means the oblique one. And again mm. and again, the, the, the famous example is Croesus, the king of Lydia, um, who is preparing to go to war with Cyrus, king of the Persians, who's very much the rising power, not sure whether he should launch a preemptive attack. So goes to um, 
to Delphi rather in the way that a government now might go to a kind of think tank or perhaps a, you yeah. know, a spy agency or something and says, you know, should I attack the Persians? And the Delphic Oracle replies, um, if you cross uh, the river that marks the frontier between you and Cyrus's kingdom, um, a great empire will fall. And Croesus assumes that this means that uh, it's Cyrus's empire that will fall. But of course, it's Croesus's empire that falls. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the genius of that is, of course, that it's it's um, an unfalsifiable argument because, uh, you know, an em- one of the two empires is going to fall. But that happened all the time, didn't it? I mean, so Philip of Macedon, when he was about to launch his attack on Persia, he went to the Oracle at Delphi and he got this message that said, wreathed is the bull. The hour is near or something. The one who will kill him is at hand. And he thought, great, I'm going to kill the king of Persia and and become ruler of the world. And, and then he died about, he was killed himself, assassinated, you know, a couple of months later. So this was obviously a theme of consulting the Delphic Oracle. You think, you know, basically you end up being stabbed in the back by your own prophecy. I think the art was... Um either to give, um, rather like Nostradamus, who I'm sure we'll come on to later, to, to, to frame things in such a way that they, you know, they're sufficiently vague that you can kind of pattern uh, events, yeah. almost, you know, whatever happens. I think on top of that, um, there is a degree to which um, the, the priests at Delphi are, um, they're, they're the only professional priesthood that the Greeks have. Um, and people are coming from across not just the Greek world, but beyond the Greek world as well, and therefore bringing information with them. And so the priests, to that extent, are probably the best informed people in Greece about what is going on internationally. And so that gives them perhaps a, a kind of broader uh, right. perspective yeah. on events than anyone else has. So that's maybe something that they can feed into their prophecies. I think also um, there's, there's a famous example um, when the Persians invade Greece in 480 and it, the, the odds look overwhelming and the Athenians go to uh, Delphi and say, you know, what's going to happen? And the first oracle is basically run for your lives. You're going to get crushed. You have no hope. Athens is going to burn. And the Athenians are devastated. And then a priest comes out and says, well, go and ask again. So they go in and they get a famous uh, second prophecy where the Athenians are told that um yeah, Athens is going to burn, I'm afraid. There's no way around that. Um, but but the wooden wall will hold. And then it kind of ends with a reference to Salamis, the island of Salamis. And sure enough, Athens does burn. The wooden wall, i.e. the Greek fleet, the Athenian fleet, does hold. And this battle is fought at Salamis. And it, it it's pretty clear. I think, I mean, I think that this oracle is an authentic one. I don't think it's a back projection. And so in a way, it's the most... You know, it's the most impressive That's oracle very impressive. That we get. I mean, it's you know, but I think that the the Delphic priests, if the, if they were thinking of a way in which the Greeks could survive, they would be aware that the Athenian strategy was to abandon Athens, right. to take to their fleet, and if the if if there was going to be a naval battle that the Greeks were going to win, it was going to be by the Greeks luring the Persians into the Straits of Salamis. That was their only chance of victory. So I think there, again, you can see that they're yeah. kind of taking a punt. So they, they're delivering one oracle that says you're doomed, and then they're delivering another one which gives up the only chance the Greeks had a victory. So I think that's kind of how it works. But I'm sure that, you know, I mean, of course people believed it, because otherwise you wouldn't go and consult it. Just one last thought on oracles before we move on to the other questions. They were pretty weird, weren't they? So I think I'm right in saying the oracle at the Temple of Ammon in Siwa um, when you went and consulted that, the oracle was this big stone that was on a sort of tray that the priests held above their heads. And you asked it questions on a piece of paper. 
and and the priests put answers on other bits of paper on the floor, and then they sort of shuffled around as the stone directed them towards the piece of paper that had the appropriate answer. Have you heard this story? Well, I think that um, one of the key things in, in, in antiquity is that just having a bloke who, who gives answers was seen as being too easy. Unreliable. <laughs> so, so at Delphi, it's fumes coming up. At sea where you have, um, as, as you've described, uh, at Dodona in northern Greece, it's the rustling of um, the sacred oak, the leaves. Uh, so <laughs> essentially, it's, it's all about... Um, interpretation yeah. so that you so, so that you can give the answer that that you think is likeliest to come true and you know and in many cases what the what the person who's coming wants to hear but but people never come and ask for their no they never come and ask for their money back or they never come and say you told me to plow this field or to marry so and so or whatever and they're burning with rage the, the, there's always a way that you can show that the, the god came to you well because croesus complains to apollo <laughs> And says, you know, you you shafted <laughs> yeah. me here, and Apollo comes and rescues him from being burnt alive on a pyre, and says, well, actually, you know, I I told you right, you didn't interpret correctly, and anyway, uh, because you were so good to me, I managed to give you a few years extra because oh, necessity right, was a... necessity doomed you, but I managed to get you, you know, a few few years extra ruling as king before you got toppled. So, um, so so stop moaning, and Croesus yeah. accepts the justice of what Apollo says, and uh, that's him. That's him schooled. Do we have another? Uh, yes, let's let's whiz on a bit because we've done apocalypse, we've done oracles. Joey McCarthy um, wants to know what you think of Nostradamus. He says Hitler, Great Fire of London, Nagasaki, JFK. He's been on the money every time. Do you, do you, <laughs> um, are well, you a Nostradamus I, fan, Tom? <laughs> uh, well, obviously, when I was about twelve, I read them obsessively, yeah. and it was full of prophecies about, I think, the Third World War happening in nineteen ninety nine, wasn't it? There was, exactly, there was a, yeah. a kind of um, the great god of fire will descend from the sky. So I was pretty terrified by that, but it, it didn't happen. And I think that Nostradamus's prophecies are um, exactly like the Delphic ones. That yeah, they're incredibly, they're laughably vague, aren't they? I mean, I used to live in Nostradamus's hometown. In Salon de Provence in the south of France, oh. yeah. Spent a year as a language assistant. And, you know, Nostradamus, they had a terrible waxwork museum of Nostradamus, which I went round one rainy afternoon. I was the only person and felt, I just felt displeased with the way my life had turned out, that this was how I was <laughs> at the age of 21 <laughs> spending, spending my time. Anyway, that's as by I, the by. As, <laughs> as I remember, there was one prophecy that he gave, wasn't it, about um, the death of Henry II in a joust and the, the, so? the lance yeah. goes through his visor and kills him and Nostradamus had apparently prophesied got right. this. Uh, he, got, he got that right, so that established his reputation. But it's a bit like, um, there's an, another one, a tweet by Tom from 2019 um, about Mother Shipton who back in the first half of the 16th century literally prophesied the internet around the world men's thoughts will fly quick as the twinkling of an eye that's not that's but, not literally the predicting the internet <laughs> is it <laughs> are you are you a fan of mother shipton are you, are um, you I don't really know familiar mother, with her oeuvre <laughs> Has um, she got a cave somewhere? Is that where I got that right? She's got a cave in Nairsborough and I know because yeah. I did a radio program about it. So, I think I've been um, to that cave. Is, yeah. yeah. Well it it um yes it turns things to stone. So it's, yeah. it's quite an eerie and atmospheric place. It's one of Britain's oldest tourist attractions. But predictably, she, she seems to have lived in the early 16th century. The earliest mention to her prophecies comes up in the um, 1640s. 
so you can see why people might start to be interested in it yes um, around that time um when the uh, when the great fire of london happens peeps says that he has overheard people saying that mother shipton had prophesied that it was going to happen so she's clearly kind of big news in in the um in the 17th century and i guess it's a bit like you know a graph on twitter it's amid the chaos of the times people grasping after mother shipton's prophecy to yes, explain what's yeah. happened but the one about the um uh, men's thoughts will fly quick as the twinkling of an eye um there's another brilliant one which is even better which uh, <laughs> prophesies um feminism um for for in those wondrous far off days the women shall adopt a craze to dress like men and trousers wear and cut off their locks of hair my word I, I think you'd agree dominic is i mean it's spooky isn't it it's the 1970s it's like that in the 60s, so, yeah, yeah incredible um and then uh, uh an even better one the world to an end shall come in 1881 Okay, so that's, that's not literally that's, true. <laughs> that's not so good. But um, this, this, all, all, of, all of these were written by a guy in the mid-19th century. Were they? They're, false, they're yeah. falsified. Oh, how depressing. They're, they're, they're completely falsified, yeah. Oh, so well. all, all those ones are completely bogus. So, All right, um, let's, um, <laughs> let's do Tom Watts. Tom Watts says he wants to know who was right, Orwell, Huxley or both. Is 1984 still to come? Is it here already? Do you have an answer to that, Tom? I don't really. Uh, you're, you, don't you? That's much more your field. Uh, so I think, um, well, Orwell went slightly out of fashion at the end of the Cold War because obviously he had been writing about, you know, basically a thinly veiled portrait of the Soviet Union. But now, now Orwell has sort of come back again with all the, the double think kind of talk and the sort of fashion, fascination with controlling language and controlling thought crime. Um, so in that sense, Orwell was, you could argue, pretty prescient. He also has the TVs that watch you and listen to you, which, you know, if you've got an Alexa, um, yes. that's a little bit worrying. Huxley's more all about biology, isn't it? I, I, it's years since I read Brave New World. I don't really remember that much about it. But isn't, isn't it, it's also about people kind of being blissed out and therefore not yeah. worrying about stuff. Um, yes. So it's Assassin's Creed. You know, if you're playing Assassin's Creed, you don't need to worry about it. Well, but that's not really true, though, is it? Because, of course, people, you know, we are, we do live long, comfortable lives and we just spend our time, you know, getting very frenzied and angry and <laughs> slacking each other off on Twitter. So, yeah, I, I mean, people don't strike me as tremendously blissed out. Do you think the world is blissed um, out? I don't. Do you think, I mean, do you think uh, on the, uh, in, in 1984, the um, three divisions of the world? Um, oh, East Asia. May, and does it, you know, if, if, if the European Union, China... And Britain as a kind of unsinkable aircraft carrier for America. Yeah, that's true. Um, maybe so. Maybe that's where we're heading. I, maybe I don't know. Yes, I don't who know. Knows. Don't know. Um, um, here's go a good on. one from Ollie Simpson. Um, in the end, Halley's Comet was an omen for a big event in 1066. So that's um, the appearance of Halley's Comet uh, yeah. in the Bay of Tapestry, featured in the Bay of Tapestry, prophesying um, the tumultuous year to come. Um, to what extent did it actually influence events? And are there other examples of this happening? So um, I- I'm sure that that what, what happened in 1066 would have happened whether Halley's Comet <laughs> happened or not. Yeah. But are there examples of um, natural phenomena impacting the way that people understand the world um maybe a question more for me than you that's maybe unfair yeah. for you well you're, you're I mean, clearly I, asking it to yourself so no i wasn't i honestly I, I usually i was you forgot that there was somebody else there <laughs> 
I think I, I think that um, I think the sixth century in yeah. the Mediterranean is an example because that that was a time of uh, extraordinary celestial phenomena, uh, a darkening of the skies. Um, terrible climactic events. And that had a knock-on effect in terms of global cooling, um, which in turn, I think, definitely had a, a knock-on effect in fostering a, apocalyptic expectation. Um, yeah. And I, I'm sure that what becomes Islam initially begins as a kind of apocalyptic attempt to prepare the world for the wrath of God to appease his anger. So I think that that would be probably my answer, that that the kind of reverberations from that. Yeah, there were, these things do reverberate, don't they? So the 17th century, which we talked about, I mean, the Little Ice Age um, yeah. and the sort of global cooling and the famines and the rain and, and all that, that that clearly did encourage people's sense of the the apocalyptic and the, the coming of Christ. These are the end times. I mean, you do think that when the world, that's what we think people think now. I mean, that's, yes, isn't it? I mean, that's yes. exactly what people think now. Yes, yes. And, and we're being punished for our sins. Yeah, so I can't believe you you missed this question because this is an absolute. I mean, I, you probably wrote this yourself, Chet Archbold, <laughs> if he if he exists, which just your sock puppet. He he's got he he or you have written a question about the Sibylline books. Um, <laughs> it was not me. <laughs> so the Sibylline books are Roman, and they're these. Well, tell us what the Sibylline books are. Uh, so the Sibylline books are what I begin Rubicon with uh, my book about the fall of the Roman Republic. So yes, perhaps it was me. <laughs> Who knows? Um, uh, The Sibylline books were um, supposedly, so the Sibyls were um, uh, women who had gift of prophecy. And a Sibyl came to uh, Tarquin, the king of Rome, and she carried nine books of prophecy, uh, books written in Greek. And she offers them for an extortionate price. Tarquin laughs in the face and tells her to go away. She then comes back and offers him six uh, he does the same thing. He th- she then comes back, offers him three. And at this point, he's kind of slightly nervous that he might be missing out on something important. So he pays, gets the Sibylline books. Um, Chet is asking, um, do, do we think they actually date back to the re- regal period? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think anyone, I think it's possible to know, but it's certain that the Romans thought that they did and that they were very ancient. And I think they probably were very ancient. And yeah. the Sibylline books were, um, we're kind of again. It's a bit like in moments of extreme crisis, who are you going to ask? You know, some think tank, some specialists, some you know people who can guide you. I guess our equivalent now would be Sage. Um, right. It's, it you know in moments of extreme crisis, you you need your specialists, and the Sibylline books provided kind of divine guidance. Now, it it by and large, what the Sibylline books do is insofar as we can tell from the historical records, is not to provide prophecies, but to tell you what you have to do if something weird has happened. So if some terrible convulsion has occurred, some strange phenomena has happened, um, portending the anger of the gods, you go to the Sibylline books and it tells you what you do to appease the gods. But I think that doesn't necessarily mean that um, there were no prophecies. It's just that we're not told that. And you do get right. the sense over the course of Roman history that the Sibylline books contain um prophecies saying what the, the fate of the Roman people is going to be. So um, so that's the Sibylline okay. books. Okay, so that's very nice for me. Is there one for... Oh, do you, no, here's one for you. Oh, Tom on. of Bedlam. Do you think Oswald Spengler will be proved right? Well, 
That's not a name you hear very much. So Oswald Spengler is this sort of um, early 20th century German writer who thinks his, his big idea is the decline of the West. So he thinks history is divided into the rise and fall of different civilizations. I can't remember whether it's eight or nine kind of Babylonian, Roman, Persian and, and Western sort of what you would call Western Christendom is the last one. And he thinks it's doomed and we're living in the sort of end times of our own civilization. And he's writing this after the First World War or before? Yeah, it? around about the First World War. I think maybe during. I, I, my, I, my memory of it yeah. is kind of hazy. But I think um, it's clearly against that backdrop, you know, a, a backdrop where, I mean, actually, we, we talked about the origins of the First World War before. Um, I've been writing a children's book about the First World War in the last few weeks. And it's just astounding when you think about how that world, that late Victorian world, just collapsed, just disintegrated. So, you know... You were, you know, if you weren't living in Germany or Austria-Hungary or Russia and you were a sort of middle-class, prosperous person, your world has just completely disintegrated. So Spengler was writing against that background. He thought the West was going to go the way of, you know, the Incas, um, that, that our world was going to be destroyed. And, of course, that idea, Spengler, has now been rejected. But actually that idea is still very widespread, isn't it? I mean, you see it now in all the sort of talk of, the democratic model has failed. China is the future. All that sort of stuff. He was also, I mean, so so if he's talking about civilizations, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the theme of um, Huntingdon's book, which I think he wrote in the nineties, the Clash yes. of Civilizations, which was, um, and it came out at the same time as Fukuyama's um, yeah, end, of end of history. And those were the two kind of great prophetic books. Um, yeah, they're the post Cold War prophecies of the of the future, aren't they? I mean, the Clash of Civilizations thesis is, I mean, in a way, it's not been disproved over the... Well, it hasn't been disproved, but I mean, I, I think it's a it's a very controversial, it's a very controversial topic, isn't it? I mean, he... But the idea, the theme of civilizations has come back into as part of the kind of geopolitical conversation in a way that it yes. wasn't in the 90s. I mean, that's... Although, although what the civilizations are that are that are clashing has changed. So in the... 90s when Huntington was writing that. I mean, the big fault line was the Balkans. And, you know, people at Huntington and American sort of think tankers were sort of saying, oh, there's this huge fault line between Catholicism and orthodoxy and Islam and it's all Bosnia and, and the sort of, um, the, the dividing line between the Austro-Hungarian and Ottoman empires. But now we're not so interested in that because basically the Balkans is all going to end up in the EU. So that, the, and, and actually even the one that was really interesting for the last 20 years, which is Christianity versus Islam, doesn't seem quite as, as yeah. resonant now. Now it's China and the West, isn't it? But but there's been quite a lot um, over the pandemic of the Confucian values of yeah, uh, exactly that have enabled yeah. uh, Korea and so on to do much better than us. So the idea of civilizations obviously is not going to go away. I mean, the idea of a clash of civilizations. What about Fukuyama, Tom? Do you, you Fukuyama end of history? I mean, he looks a bit of a. That doesn't that that thesis has not worn terribly well, shall we? Well, say. my hot take on Fukuyama is that um, he didn't actually predict what people think he did, but because I haven't read it since the nineties, I couldn't possibly elaborate <laughs> on what that is. But I know what the hot take is. Um, well, I think he he thinks he's been maligned, doesn't he? He says yes. sort of says he's been yes. uh, he's been grossly maligned, yes. but in a sense, he has to say that. Because <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Um, well. I think that we have um, we have Reached looked into the future history. enough, and you know, frankly, this is a history podcast. So um, next time we are going to go definitely back to the past, um, Dominic. We are going to do our top ten kind of 
Weird wars is the wrong phrase. Uh, weird wars is the right. No, it's a good phrase. It's a, okay, I've, weird I've wars. got some and, very weird wars lined up. Okay, well, so, so I'm choosing five, and you're choosing five, and yeah. we will be um, we'll be back with them. Um, thanks so much for all your questions. So do look out for uh, the next um, one coming out on Thursday. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.